When I first entered the field about 20 years ago, I was exposed to several different theories of psychotherapy. I was exposed to, you know, cognitive theory, behavioral theory, uh, narrative therapy, you know, all the various different, you know, I don't know, dozens and dozens of different psychotherapy theories. And yet one of them really resonated with me, and that was object relations. It was more specifically, uh, at the time, I was exposed specifically to object relations family therapy. And I, it's interesting to me because 20 years uh, hence, I still find object relations and psychodynamic theory to be the most compelling theory and the most interesting and the most uh, worth my time, so to speak. Incidentally, all the theories resonate with me, cognitive theory, behavioral theory, um, the brief therapies, humanistic psychotherapies, all of them resonate with me. But I, I, when I think about if I had to choose one or if I had to count the amount of uh, instances in which I think about any particular theory, psychodynamic would be the one that really sticks out for me. When uh, when I was in graduate school, I, uh, they actually forced us to choose one theory and to stick with it for a bit. It's a common graduate school practice, and I chose object relations theory and uh, barely understood it. In fact, I would venture to say it probably took me about 15 years to really even halfway grasp what object relations and psychodynamic theory was. And it wasn't really until, I don't know, I was probably almost done with my doctorate years later that I, and, and, and was given ample opportunity to read and write and talk and research and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't really until then that I was like, oh, I think I'm starting to get this. And, and so uh, I, I think that's part of the reason why I like it, honestly, is because it's so complex and it just, it, it never ceases to confuse me. <laughs> And whereas other theories I can grasp uh, in a short amount of time, it doesn't mean that those theories are not worthy. You know, in a lot of ways, it's like cognitive therapies are extremely elegant and and simple, not in a bad way, but but simple and not hard to understand. Um, but there's something very compelling about a theory that defies my attempts to understand it fully. <laughs> Uh, plus, it has such a rich history. It goes way back. So I've done episodes on uh, psychodynamic theory before. Incidentally, if you want to find, uh, if you want to search all the different episode titles, you can go to psychologyseattle.com. Recently, I uh, made a list of every single episode that we've ever made. Also, some of the episodes aren't available on your on your podcast app on your phone because Apple only goes back to, I think, 300 episodes or something. So, and we've done, I don't know, five, almost 500 or 500 plus. And if you want, all the episodes are available on psychologyinseattle.com. So if you go there, you can, uh, you can get access to even episodes that might not be on your podcasting application. Having said that, they're probably really old episodes and not as good as the newer ones, and the sound quality might not be as great. But anyway, I've done a lot of episodes on psychodynamic theory, and if you want to listen to those episodes, you can uh, go to psychologyinseattle.com and search for the titles of those. Actually, I part of the reason why I'm even talking to you just by myself in this episode right now 
is because years ago, I just on a whim decided to do an episode on psychodynamic formulation, which I analyzed Gloria from the Gloria tapes, if you're familiar. That, that was one of the very first, if not the very first episode that I did by myself. And in that episode, I talked about how I felt insecure about doing the podcast by myself, because up until that point, I always had a guest, particularly Umberto, with me. And I had a, a really great response. People said like, oh, no, we really like it when you have guests and we like it when you do it by yourself. So please do more of these. So uh, I'll, you can thank a lot of the direction that the podcast went into in terms of theory and all this kind of stuff uh, on that very first psychodynamic episode. Anyway, today's episode is going to be very long. I have 30 pages of notes, which a, a rough estimate will translate I'm guessing it in like four hours of me talking. So um, I've got my water next to me and it's midday. So I have plenty of hours ahead of me to do this. Uh, this so this is going to be a long one. Basically what I decided to do was I pulled all the different documents that I have been uh, writing over the past 10 years regarding psychodynamic psychoanalytic th uh, theory and compiled everything into one document, essentially, that uh, so even though I've talked about what I'm about to talk about in other episodes, I've never fully synthesized it in this in this full manner before. And so so that's what I'm going to do today. And God knows how long this is going to take. I'm, I'm going to talk about the theory. I'm going to talk about I'm not going to go into the history that much, because if I did that, it would double the size of this episode. I'm going to talk a lot about defenses, particularly projective identification. I'm going to talk about corrective experiences and my approach to therapy. I'm, I'm going to also try to provide a number of examples because that's really where the I think the learning happens is when you actually apply this to actual human beings. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. So I'm going to do that today. All right. Well, welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Sorry to you non-patrons out there. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, you have to become a patron of this podcast to hear the whole episode. So if you're not a patron, this episode is going to end soon. And so if you want to hear the full episode, go to patreon.com and become a patron. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you'll get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes like this one in which we do deep dives into various different topics. Usually the patron-exclusive episodes are the, the, the most meatiest, <laughs> the most deepiest, diviest. So, uh, so yeah, go to patreon.com. And also remember that a portion, a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that, that we support. And in fact, we're very close to meeting the next goal on Patreon in which we'll start donating to petfinder.com which is an organization that saves pets from being euthanized and connects pets very quickly and through all these different volunteer networks to families that want uh, these animals. So again, go to patreon.com, become a patron, do it now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. Let me, uh, let me thank a few of our new patrons here. We have new patron Christina, Crystal, Danielle, Akemi, Lorna, Rebecca, Bridget, Anna, Diane, Itra, 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 Brian, Kelly, Gary, Katie, Alexis, Valerie, Tara, 
you guys are awesome for becoming patrons. Thank you so, so much. All right, let's get into this. All right, so as I always say before I talk about psychodynamic theory, psychodynamic and psychoanalytic theory is so vast. It's the vastest of all the theories. In fact, just my opinion or rough estimation, if you combined all the other therapy theories together, psychodynamic theory would still be 10 to 100 times more vast than all of the rest combined. It has a super long history going back even before Freud to people like Charcot. Uh, So there's no way I'm going to be able to uh, describe the entire thing. But I hope in this episode to provide you with, I think, a helpful way of distilling it down. There's, There's just a lot of fluff in psychodynamic theory that doesn't that I think is it it confuses and distracts from I think the power so I'm going to provide sort of the power middle of it also keep in mind as I describe all of this that this is my take it's not the take it's it's essentially my model of psychodynamic theory and therapy and should be considered as such I'm going to word things in a particular way I'm going to use terms I'll try to explain as I go along where my uh, terms fall in terms of other people using them. But, but so, you know, just keep that in mind. I'm going to, you're going to hear a lot of things sort of sprinkled in because uh, I'm an integrationist in terms of all the different theories. You'll, you'll hear humanistic stuff. You'll hear narrative stuff. And, um, and I'll, I'll try to talk about that as I go. Also, another thing uh, is to remember is that as any other model of therapy, psychodynamic therapy is just a model and no model is more true than any other you know people love to say that this model is better and this model is stupid models are just ways of understanding the world and and human nature is so infinitely complex that we need models to understand uh, who we are and why we do things and and make sense of it all and so if there was some reductive, scientific, empirical model that we could rel- all rely on and agree on, then we would we would establish that. But the fact is, is that people are too complex for that. So we need sort of these metaphoric models to, to guide our understanding of people. And psychodynamic uh, theory is it's just, a, it's just another one of those models. And, and each of these models is attempting to... Uh, uh, describe and predict behavior. And so uh, that's that's all that it is, and it should be considered as such. It People today uh, I, will talk like, well, you know, psychodynamic uh, therapy has been empirically invalidated or something. And it's like, that's not possible. You can't, you can't possibly invalidate a model or a, or a perspective or a way of trying to describe how things work. It, they're all just um, guidelines, and they're not the the map is not the terrain, right? Is the thing the terrain? The it's I'm going to butcher this, but essentially the the saying goes the proverb that the map is not the terrain. You have to, you know, we all live on on the earth, right? And there's a look out your window. There's a terrain out there. There's a there's streets and and trees and people and grass and rivers and oceans and blah, blah, blah. and when you create a map of it the map is not the terrain the map is just a model or a representation of the terrain 
And uh, if you never saw that, if you never, if you just sent maps to uh, not like Google Maps with terrain on it, but if you just took like a road map and sent it to an, an alien and, and who had never, who lives in a different dimension and, and they looked at this map, they'd be like, you, they wouldn't understand earth, right? They would just have this model of understanding earth. They'd have to come here to understand it. And so um, when we experience humans and when we experience ourselves that's the terrain but we have to create a language around to describe it so so the the psychodynamic model is it's just a map an abstraction of the reality that uh, each of us actually has a different reality and so so you know it, it it's it all all of this needs to just be taken with that in mind does it invalidate it no uh cert- some models do not resonate with other people. The, the only reason why I and others are still talking about psychodynamic theory is because it resonates with a certain group of people and has resonated for decades, if not centuries. And that's one of the hallmarks of a good model is that people tend to return to it. And when they hear about it, they go, oh, wow, that, that, that does make sense to me. So well, let's just keep that in mind. Also, before moving forward, I just want to provide uh, some landscape in, ter- in terms of the terms. I'm using the term psychodynamic. There are other words. There, each one of these terms that I'm going to mention are different but overlapping and sometimes used interchangeably. So, uh, so understand that. You have psychodynamic. You have psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic. Sometimes people just use the word dynamic or brief dynamic therapy object relations, ego psychology, self-psychology, classical psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis, neo-Freudians, interpersonal therapy, intersubjective therapy, relational therapy, relational psychoanalysis. All of these different terms have several main figures in them, have, uh, you know, just libraries full of of books that and articles that are, have been written in each of these categories. So when I say psychodynamic, I'm lumping everything together, which is 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 a to some people a ridiculous notion. Uh, so, it, or another way you could say it is that I'm pulling from all of these these twenty different areas in you know the psychodynamic umbrella to integrate one particular version of it or one particular model. Um, also, there are Many famous key figures in you know psychoanalysis, psychodynamic theory, including, of course, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, uh, Joseph Breuer, for Ferenzi, Anna Freud, uh, Sigmund's daughter, Melanie Klein, Karen Horney, Fairburn, Sullivan, great guy, Sullivan, Winnicott. I did a whole episode on Winnicott. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, Kohut, Bion, Lang, Mailer. Ackerman, uh, Ackerman is a early uh, psychodynamic family therapist. Alexander Bowlby, John Bowlby, uh, Mary Ainsworth, Ronk, Guntrip, Erickson, Kernberg, Kernberg's great, Ogden's great, Mitchell's great, Gill, Starolo, uh, Masterson, Scharf. Scharf was uh, the object relations family therapy person that I was exposed to at first. You got Gelso, you got Hayes, you got Gabbard, you got Tabor, interpersonal person. You got McWilliams, 
uh, some of you will email me about like oh wait a second so the um the patrons who actually kind of motivated me to do all this are patron maria and patron terrence uh they sent some questions in that i was like you know maybe i should just do a whole episode on this again so there and and i think people some of you patrons will mention mcwilliams mcwilliams is a a very easy to understand writer. So if you want to find good and, Oh, I also have a number of books. Not only do I have a, on the psychology in Seattle website, do I have a list of all the episodes, but I also have a list of all the books I recommend. They're, they're very academic and there's a number of psychodynamic books, interpersonal books. I'm pretty sure I have Tabor's book on there and McWilliams book on there as well. Okay. So I, and I'm leaving out a whole bunch of other people, Hall, all these other people who, uh, could be mentioned that uh, I'm not mentioning. And so it, the history is vast. The The field has many names. The, the field has many humans who have contributed with different points of view. So just understand that. Okay, so let's go into the key concepts, right? So I'm going to, this is going to take a while, but I'm going to talk about uh, a number of key concepts here. And let's see if I have a full list. So I'm going to talk about the mind. I'm going to talk about Two, mental dynamics. I'm going to talk about personality, determinism, the unconscious, subjectivity, inner subjectivity, attachment, internalized dyadic representations, and countertransference, awareness, and defenses. So the first thing we're going to talk about here is the mind. So there are many terms for the mind. We have uh, the mind. We have psyche. You know, we have personality. We have um, sometimes, you know, the ego, superego, id uh, conglomeration. Other people might refer to them to the mind as a soul or a spirit or a black box, if you're familiar with that term. So I, I tend to use the word psyche or maybe even personality. So uh, just keep that in mind. But, you know, the idea of a mind is actually important to establish within this model of psychodynamic theory in that other psychodynamic theories don't propose the notion of a mind or a psyche they, or they don't care. They're just like, well, maybe there's a psyche, maybe there isn't, but it doesn't really matter. So it, it sounds funny to say, but there are certain things that need to be established. And, and one of them is that the, there's an assumption that we have a psyche. That's, that's something that other theories don't, uh, they either say, no, you don't, or the notions of that can't be demonstrated through behavior, or uh, who cares if you have a psyche or not. And we don't understand how the mind works, so it's not as if, so the idea of a mind doesn't mean we understand the mind, it just means that we know that we, or we assume that there's a, there's a thing called a mind or a psyche. And we can define it uh, a psyche from a number of different angles, we have the conscious and the unconscious, and that's what the mind is. It's you know it comprises of the entirety of your conscious mind and the entirety of your unconscious mind. Um, in in recent decades, there has been a philosophical shift away from thinking of the mind as this unit that is independent from its environment. There, people have expanded the mind into the body. You know, if you, if you just took a brain and put it in a jar somewhere. Uh, what would happen to your mind? <laughs> You're, you would very quickly within probably 10 minutes lose your mind, so to speak. You need to have your body involved. We, we 
our, our cognitions are not in our body. You know, people will say that, you know, I hold this memory in this one part of my body and stuff. And, and it's like, it's a fine metaphor. And maybe if you manipulate that part of the body, it, it, um, you know, creates a sensation, which results in a, a signal going to your brain, which triggers you to remember something. And, and, and all that is, is real, but you can't hold a memory in your knee because your knee doesn't have neurons that encode for memory. Your, your, your knee has, has neurons, but it encode, but their the purposes are for sensing and for, for movement and all that and regulation of various different functions. So, so that our brain has most of our psyche, but the, but the, but the integration with the body, I'm, and I'm not explaining this very well, um, but, but just, just know that the, the idea of a psyche, the idea of a mind needs to include your body in it. Uh, and it can't, it's not separate from your body. It's, it's a, it's a part of your body. Also, others have even expanded it beyond the threshold of your own skin to relationships. When we isolate people, when we put them into isolation chambers or when we put them in prisons in which they, they don't have interactions with other people, they, they, people start to lose their minds because we need relationships with other people in order to ground us, in order to know who we are. We are social creatures. We are uh, – our psyches are linked through behavior and interpretation and interactions with other people. And so uh, you can, in a sense, expand the idea of a psyche into relationships. It's sort of like you can't just look at a, a bacteria and just um, think of it as an, as an isolated cell. You have to expand it to the community of bacteria it lives in and maybe the, you know, the ecology that it lives in to understand or even to... Uh, understand how the individual bacteria cell uh, operates. You have to understand the context, and so, so, and again, I'm not explaining this well. There's, there's smarter people who can walk you through this whole thing. But anyway, the idea of the mind includes the body and uh, the social context in which we live. Okay, so that's number one: is that psychodynamic? My model of psychodynamic theory includes a notion of the mind or of the psyche. Number two. My model also assumes that there are what we call mental dynamics. This is where the term psychodynamic comes from, you know, because psycho means mind. Dynamic means a system of forces that interacts and change, changes over time. So psychodynamic or mind forces, you could a system of mind forces, you, you could think of it as. And so within psychodynamic theory, there's this assumption that we have internal forces in our psyche that interact with each other, you know, forces of our thinking, forces of feelings, forces of drives, of impulses, both unconscious and unconscious. And they can complement each other, they can be in concert with each other, or they can be in conflict with each other. We have egos and defense mechanisms and all these different things happening in our psyche. So that's another assumption. Again, okay, so number one, we assume that there's a mind, and number two, we assume that there are mental dynamics. Number three is we assume that there's a personality. Some of you might assume that all models of psychotherapy include the idea of a personality, but really the only theory that talks about personality is psychodynamic theories and perhaps attachment models. 
Uh, some might argue with me in that way, like schema therapy, which is a cognitive therapy, kind of assumes there's a personality in a sense. But, but really, psychodynamic theory is the main discusser of personality, if not the sole discusser of personality. You know, all the other theories like cognitive, behavior, narrative, solution focus, systems, humanistic, existential, experiential, gestalt, strategic, structural, brief, collaborative, positive psychology, all, all of these major psychotherapy theories don't really talk about personality or or they have a central feature, a central tenet that says there is no such thing as a personality and you have to live in the here and now and people can be whoever they want to be. Uh, Bowenian therapy kind of assumes a little bit of a personality, but but not much. Okay, so let's talk about uh, what do I mean when I say that within the model of psychodynamic, within my model of psychodynamic theory, really with any, any model of psychodynamic theory, there's this, there's this assumption of a personality. Well, let's, let's define what personality means. Well, it, it's similar to the, the notion of a mind or a psyche, but it refers to particular traits of an individual. Basically, it's uh, the personality is, your personality is the totality of all your what I, what I call, quote-unquote, mostly predictable aspects of your thinking, feeling, and behavior and impulses and that kind of stuff. You know, mostly predictable is the key phrase. Um, as time goes on, we tend to behave in, in semi-predictable ways. We react in predictable ways. We engage in similar behavior from one day to the next. Our preferences are predictable from one day to the next. These are considered personality traits. You know, are traits like are we generally open to new experiences or do we tend to like to do the same thing every day? Do we do we like to be around people or, or do we like to be by ourselves? What are our sexual preferences? Do we get angry when someone hurts our feelings? And when we get angry, how do we express that anger and so on? Now, there are many similarities between people, so it's not like there aren't similarities, but there are noticeable differences between individuals, and that's what we call personality. Uh, I could go on and on about personality, but, um, but let's, uh, let's just kind of keep it at that. Personality, uh, it, in my opinion, is a, is a product of many, many things. We develop a personality throughout our lives, particularly in our early lives. And the personality is a product of a number of different things. Uh, number one, it's a product of tepper, temperament and biology. You know, some people are born extroverted. Some people are born in, introverted, that kind of thing. And anyone who has interacted or had their own children, young children, will will attest to this. They'll just be like, you know, I've, I've had four children, and as babies, they were all different. And so that's temperament. You could consider that a biological disposition or something. Personality is also a product of important early experiences, such as attachment experiences, traumatic experiences. Personality is also a product of individual decisions in the present. You know, For example, at any time, someone can choose to consciously change their personality to some degree. Someone could say, you know what, I'm going to try to be more extroverted from now on. You know, that, that's possible. So, so even though temperament is involved and early experiences are definitely a factor in your personality, you can also 
change, you can consciously change your personality if you want to and develop new habits. Personality is also a product of the relational field. So, uh, you know, if, if you're in a particular kind of emotional relational field, you might have a, have a different shade of your personality. Number five, family structure also plays a role in your development of personality. So, for instance, when you were growing up, what was your role in your family? Were you the good kid? Were you the, the scapegoat? Were you the active one or the clown or something? And so family structure often plays a role in the development of personality. Number six, the sociocultural field. So not only the relational field that you're in in terms of the relationships of people, but also the, the, so, the society that you live in will also affect your personality. And then lastly, also current circumstances. So say, you know, you just broke your leg or something or, or you are, uh, I don't know, in a riot or something. You know, these are circumstances that will affect your personality. And so, so again, number one, temperament. Two, early experiences. Three, individual decisions that you make in the present. Number four, the relational field. Number five, family structure. Number six, sociocultural field. And number seven, current circumstances. So those are just my my factors that play into not only the manifestation of your current personality, but also the development of your personality over time. Because personality tends to emerge out of out of those factors. Personality is is for the most part out of your control. It is constructed unconsciously through uh, unconscious processes and through things that are outside of you that you just don't have any control over. But it also is to some extent under your control as well. So um, you know you can sort of purposely try to you know, figure out a way to affect your personality in particular or or make conscious decisions about who you are and who you want to be. For instance, when I was a kid, I remember I had this friend who uh, I was, we were really good friends. His name was Greg. And we played a lot of sports together and we played on the recess together and we were very active and we were always falling down or scraping a knee or, you know, banging our head on something. And whenever he hurt himself, even when it was really bad, he would never cry. (laughs) He would never get angry. He would never get emotional. He would just, he would just, he would just sort of like, he was like an adult in that he would, you know, there's this transition you see kids go through. You're like, kids will fall and they're not, you can tell they're not hurt. They're just scared. And they'll, they'll just start wailing, you know, you know, or they're hurt. And they're, you know, something hurt them and they, they just wail. And there's usually a transition that people go through in which they stop doing that because it's, it's, they need to, you know, garner their own kind of uh, support, inner, inner strength, inner soothing mechanisms. It's also a societal thing that we, we shame people for being dependent on others. And so there's all that. But anyway, <laughs> as a product of that external shame, when I, looked at myself in comparison to my friend Greg, I was like, I was like, man, I, I, I wail too often. And my friend Greg just takes it in stride and, and doesn't react. And, and so I remember consciously trying to alter that part of my personality and, uh, was semi-successful. You know, whenever I, I would get hurt after that point, I would try not to cry. I would try 
to be graceful under pressure and that kind of thing. Um, and so anyway, that's just an example of trying to change your personality. All right. So, um, the other thing is, is that personality development is a compounding sort of process. We develop early personality traits for temperament reasons or early childhood experiences. And then th- those personality traits create different choices that we make later in life, right? It's different kinds of relationship interactions, different kinds of uh, behavior, which in turn create a new set of experiences later in life, which in turn affect the development of our personality and so on. Um, this is this is why siblings can be so different, is be- partially because of temperament, but also because each person, like for instance, let's say you you take uh, someone who uh, you know early on just has a, a slightly extroverted difference than their siblings do, and so when they interact in their family, um, they are uh, just they they ex- and this is a bad example. <laughs> Some every once in a while, I head into a um, example or a analogy and. I don't know how to finish it. And this is one of those times. Usually I can just kind of roll with it. And essentially I'm just like improving. I feel, I feel like I'm a, I'm on a train and I'm laying out the tracks right in front of the train. And this is one of the times where I just went off the rails. So uh, let me try to make a different uh, um, example or analogy here. So let's say that you, as an early child, you interpret your parents being, authoritarian as a bad thing. You're just like, God, I hate it when my parents tell me what to do. And my siblings, you know, they, they seem to just bow down to my parents, but I, I don't like to do that. So I'm the sort of person. So it's this, so you're making these choices early on. You're just like, I don't like authority. I'm the sort of person who doesn't like authority. Well, so the next time you interact with authority, things aren't going to go well. And that's going to compound your notion that authority sucks, which is just going to make things worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Whereas your siblings right next to you who are experiencing perhaps the exact same parenting style, just based on different temperamental differences or family role differences, just have a slightly different attitude towards authority, which again compounds as they live their life into a different experience and different creation of relational experiences with their authority figures, which compounds a, a different sort of life and then uh, and then a different sort of personality. So this is how things like borderline for instance can emerge in a family in which the parents are are basically good because you know little shifts happen here and there and over time these these things just compound and they just build on each other and and personality traits tend to have kind of a cascading effect if that makes any sense. Um, so anyway, all right. So that's number three personality. So we had one, we have the, we assume there's a mind. Number, number two, we assume there are mental dynamics. Number three, we assume there's a personality and we assume it develops over time. And number four is the idea of what we call determinism. Determinism. Uh, we assume that our personalities are determined by our childhoods or our past experiences. So there's a lot of different terms that kind of get lumped into this. Sometimes people will, will, in books, they'll just refer to this idea as past experiences. They'll just say, you know, psychodynamic therapy is is interested in past experiences. So I'm kind of lumping all that into the 
discussion of determinism. Uh, determinism often has like a bad uh, connotation, but in my view, it doesn't. Basically, early experiences and early relationships are internalized into our psyche, into our mind, and become somewhat solid parts of our personality. Um, these early, early relationships and these early experiences are, are not just simply recorded as memories. They're, they're experienced through our personality. The, they're digested and morphed and, and broken apart and recombined and perceived and, and then unconsciously constructed into our personality, which I'll get more into later. Um, so, so this is what uh, we call determinism in, in that your past experiences determine your later behavior, your later personality. Okay. So again, number one, we assume there's a mind. Number two, we assume mental dynamics. Number three, we assume a personality exists. And number four, we uh, assume that your personality is determined by the past or that your past experiences have an effect on your on your personality. Number five, we have we assume that there's an unconscious. What is the definition of, of an unconscious? Well, the definition that I use is the unconscious is the quote-unquote place where mental processes occur automatically and are not available to introspection. So they're, 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 we have mental processes that are happening in our psyche, in our personality, but we don't know that they're happening, and they occur, in a sense, automatically. They're outside of our conscious awareness and outside of our conscious control. These are things like thoughts and memory and emotion and mental dynamics and defenses and impulses and drives and attractions and disgustions and you know all those kind of you know those kinds of things. Now, sometimes people use the term uh, pre-conscious. They'll they'll you know they have what's conscious and what's pre-conscious and what's unconscious. I tend to I tend to use different kinds of terms like like mostly unconscious or something. Cause I don't know, pre-conscious just doesn't, I don't know, doesn't sit right with me. I mean, it's fine as a, con- as a word, but I just like to use the term mostly conscious or mostly unconscious or something. Anyway, cause, cause nothing is really truly conscious. Uh, you know, even as I'm talking to you right now in this microphone, I, I'm obviously consciously thinking about what I'm going to say to you, but, but, how do I, if I had to think about every single word that I was going to tell, say to you, I, I would get tripped up, right? So I have to, uh, I have to unconsciously construct all these sentences as I'm talking to you on the fly. And a lot of this languaging processing that I'm doing as I'm talking to you is an unconscious process. So, so very little of our psyche is available to our explicit conscious mind. But anyway. Now, the word unconscious can be used as a noun and as an adjective. For instance, as a noun, in the following sentence, the client has denied a deep wish within her unconscious. So the unconscious is a place, you know, person, place, or thing, noun. So the unconscious can be used as a, as a noun, as a place. But it can also be used as an adjective, which confuses people. So you, you can say, you know, I have an unconscious wish. So in that way, it's not a place anymore. It's a it's an adjective. You're describing the wish, and so it's an unconscious wish. So you can say the unconscious is a place, and it's also 
um, an, a description of a noun. And so just keep all that in mind. Much of our mental life is unconscious. Some obvious things like breathing is usually unconscious. Your heart rate is very unconscious. You don't, you know, it's your brain controls your heart rate for the most part, and that's an unconscious mental process. Your movement, you know, as with speaking, if you had to think about every single movement, every every single tiny little muscle that you move as you move through the world, if you had to do that, you you'd be paralyzed. And so, uh, a lot of your movements are unconscious. Your emotions are unconscious, right? You, you can't consciously control your emotions. You can try to influence, but you know when you feel pain or when you feel hurt or or even happy or elated, it's 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 for the most part an unconscious thing. Your dreams are obviously unconscious unless you're lucid dreaming. Um, the main reason why we're interested in the unconscious is because symptoms and Self-destructive behaviors are often motivated by unconscious mental dynamics. You know, the presenting problems that clients will bring into therapy are often a product of the unconscious. For example, years ago, a client entered therapy with me. She, she asked me for help with her parenting. And after a month of working on her parenting, it seemed that we were done because her parenting had improved and she was telling me that everything was going great. And so I suggested termination. I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe then you want to terminate. And she became angry with me. And so it was then I realized that more needed to be explored. So we started exploring and we both realized that she had an unconscious wish for a secure relationship that she had never experienced before. And she was detecting that with me. And so she, you know, but she didn't know that when she came in. When she came in to therapy, she's like, I want to work on my parenting. And then when I suggested termination, she felt this, this unconscious feeling emerge into her conscious mind of, of terror and of anger. And we, when we explored that, we, we discovered that unconsciously she has this wish for a secure relationship. And so, uh, um, you know, that, that's an example of how unconscious issues will emerge in the, in the problems that clients will present to us. All right, so again, getting back to our key assumptions here in my take on psychodynamic theory is, number one, we assume there's a mind. Number two, we assume there's mental dynamics. Number three, we assume there's a personality. Number four, we assume indeterminism. Number five, we assume there's an unconscious. And number six, we assume in subjectivity. Everyone experiences the world differently. That's what we refer to when we're using the word subjectivity. Phenomenology, hermeneutics, all these different you know, social constructionism, all these different interlocking, overlapping terms. But the, the term typically used in psychodynamic literature is subjectivity. Basically, the thoughts we have, the feelings we experience, the behaviors we exhibit are just the, the final sort of pathway of our personalized subjective experience. We experience the world, which influences the things that we notice about ourselves. We notice our thoughts. We notice our emotions. We notice our behavior. But our subjectivity is is broader than that and uh, very particular to us. For example, when, when someone says that they're angry, we can't just assume we know what they mean by that. We, we can't assume that we understand what their subjectivity is based on them saying, I was angry yesterday. 
we would have to, uh, what we say, bracket our biases. We'd have to put aside what, what we think that word means, and then we would have to really ask that person for their lived experience before we could even approach a you know very minor understanding of what they're talking about. So that's subjectivity. It's very important in, in um, contemporary psychodynamic um, thought. Number seven is a related topic, which is intersubjectivity. We assume that there is an intersubjective field. For instance, in the therapeutic relationship, uh, we have uh, two interacting subjectivities that are creating new meanings rather than you know, what we might say discovering a fixed objective meaning. In other words, that the therapist is not a detached, objective clinician of reality. You know, clinicians, therapists don't have a monopoly on on reality, and clients aren't the only ones who can distort reality. All of us, clients and therapists alike, we're all distorting "quote unquote" reality, or we all have our own subjective experience of reality all the time, and when we have two subjectivities coming together. They interact with each other and create a field of intersubjectivity. So this this is a systemic idea. It's an idea that's within systems theory, but it's also an idea in contemporary intersubjective, uh, interpersonal psychotherapies, relational psychotherapies, in that you each of us have our own subjectivity, and when we come together, our sub, our subjectivities interact with each other to create a intersubjective whole, if that makes any sense. So, for example, each client that I work with feels different to me, and I feel different when I work with each of these clients. So if I'm a fixed personality, how can I feel so different around different people? Well, that's because my subjective experience and my issues and my my personality – I bring it to the table. The other person brings theirs to the table. And then we interact with each other, which instantly changes the circumstances that that influence our subjectivity and our personality. And then that creates a, a feedback loop in between us and some other thing emerges that makes me feel different around that person. Okay. So again, number one, we assume there's a mind. Number two, we assume in mental dynamics – Three, we assume personality. Four, we assume uh, determinism. Number five, we assume there's an unconscious. Number six, we assume in subjectivity. And number seven, we assume in intersubjectivity. And number eight, we assume that attachment is a thing. (laughs) Um, This could be subsumed under the category of determinism, but it's worth having its own category. Attachment is very important. So although Bowlby and attachment theory are, are often considered to be outside of psychodynamic theory. There are many who consider it to be uh, uh, inside psychodynamic theory because attachment theory, the, the central premises of it are completely in line with psychodynamic theory, right? It, the idea that early childhood experiences affect adult relationship patterns, you know, that's it's totally psychodynamic. Plus, before attachment theory was a thing, many authors in the psychoanalytic community were essentially talking about attachment, just not perhaps as well or as as John Bowlby made it so popular. You know, ba- basically, attachment theory is com- complicated, but uh, in, in its essence, it's the idea that our early attachment experiences affect our uh, adult attachment reactivity and, and experience. 
It, it's just that simple, but it's a super powerful idea, and it provides a lot of power of prediction and a lot of power of understanding and a lot of power to understand how to treat. Uh, for example, uh, more specifically, if, if our parents create a relationship with us that makes us feel securely attached, you know, we're safe, we know that they have our back, we know that they'll come when we call, and they won't, they also won't um, eliminate us, they'll, they'll give us room to move. If our parents create that very healthy attachment space for us, then we tend to uh, develop a secure attachment style as an adult, and this makes us better able to adapt as teenagers and adults. And we can adapt in all aspects, at work, with our own f- emotional reactivity, but particularly in intimate relationships. Also, another thing to keep in mind regarding attachment is that we can change our general attachment security later in life. So even though we might be, we might emerge into adulthood with a particular attachment style, we can alter it one way or the other, actually. You know, we we can be parented very well and and have a fairly secure uh, attachment style as, as a young adult and have a number of relational traumas that can make us feel quite insecure and develop an insecure attachment style and vice versa. Okay. So again, number one, the mind, number two, mental dynamics, number three, personality, number four, determinism, number five, unconscious, number six, subjectivity, number seven, inner subjectivity, number eight, attachment, and number nine is the biggie is the idea of internalized dyadic representations. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways that I title this. I've been writing about this topic over the years. It's it's basically the key concept to my model, but I'm calling it internalized dyadic representations, but you could also just call it internalized early relationships or another term people use is um, just like um, interjects is another. Um, it, it's, it's, it basically emerged from object relations theory, which is you know, one of the sub-theories of psychodynamic theory. Whenever I talk about object relations theory, I, I try to remind people that it, it the term object relations can be a little off-putting because of the lingo that they used to use almost 100 years ago, or I guess more than 100 years ago. So I, I wish it was called something like relationship theory or early relationship theory or parent relationship theory. Because object relation sounds funny to our contemporary ears, but anyway. So when you think object, just think, just think person. You know, per- person relationship theory is is what um, you know object relations basically means in a nutshell. Okay, so before moving forward, let's define the word object because it, I think it bears defining. Um, it's more of a term than a than a concept, but. It's worth defining that the term object can be confusing because it's used in a lot of different ways, and it it's um it's just kind of a confusing term. So it it refers to a lot of different things. One, it can uh, refer to an inanimate thing like a rock or a teddy bear or something. It can also refer to a person like your parents. It can refer to a physical part of another person like their foot or the breast. Or something, it can refer to an intangible part of another person, like mother's love. Can be sometimes they refer to that as the object, you know, the um, 
the love object would mean the object of the love, but sometimes an, an intangible thing can also be an object. Anyway, it can refer to a part of your inner self. You can have an inner object, uh, an internalized object. It can be a part of your own body, like you can have, you know, your foot can be an object. And it can also be, you know, a target of an instinctual drive, just like a love object or a or a anger object or something. And so, uh, but in general, object tends to refer to people and uh, or internalized people, which I'll get into. All right. So again, this idea of internalizing relationships is a major tenet of my model, and is the um, the idea that we uh, internalize our relationships. So significant relationships and significant interactions are internalized into our psyche, into our mind, and become a semi-permanent part of our personality. And the, the more powerful the interaction is, you know, the more significant, the more emotionally powerful it is to us, and the more frequent the experience, the stronger the internalization becomes. So... So as I, you know, go forward, I'm going to be using a lot of different words, but um, I'm going to try to stick to internalization. That that's the word that I tend to like. It's not it's not accurate to use that term. If I use the term internalization in a psychodynamic uh, conference, people would be like, "I don't think you're using that the way other people are using it," which is true. But I find that there's just so many different words that refer to this, and you know, I, I've been playing around with different different titles like internalized dyadic representation dyad meaning two people and and we internalize these representations of dyads into our mind um i was using like internalized construct meaning that we construct things i was using interject and and so i don't know uh i'll probably i'm gonna for this discussion for now i'm gonna use the, the term internalization um in another year i might decide to use something else but anyway so let me give you an example of, of what this interject or internalization looks like. So when we're children, let's say our mother holds us and loves us. Our mother is sitting there and she, you know, we're say six months old, 12 months old, and our mother is holding us and she's loving us. This is a relational, a significant relational experience because it is charged with all this emotional energy and therefore, and it's frequent or hopefully it's frequent. And so it becomes internalized. And each time our mothers held us this way and fed us, we internalize that relational experience. And over time, this internalized representation of our, we, know, we internalize this, this mother object into our brains, into our psyches and uh, and I'll get into more of that later, but that's just you know a very rough kind of sketch there. Okay, so these internalizations can be generally categorized as either positive or negative. Although it could be argued that some just are neutral or something. But you know, positive internalizations are nurturing relationships, good relationships. You know, positive relationships that we had growing up, and these result in us as adults when we have positive interjects. We tend to trust other people. We believe in ourselves. We develop coping mechanisms. Our emotional regulation is improved. Our attachment security is improved. Whereas when we have negative interjects or negative internalizations with negative or neglectful or confusing or abusive relationships, this results in attachment and security, not trusting other people, not trusting the self, not having coping skills, uh, ongoing 
you know, mental problems and the overuse of defenses. Okay, so let's let's get a little bit more specific into what exactly is being internalized as we experience these important relationships. Okay, so these internalizations comprise of five different elements, and this is my model. Other people talk about this kind of, but but I find that it's useful to really break this out into these five different components. So when, in that example, earlier example of mother is holding you and feeding you, and you are in that situation, there's a number of different things that are being internalized. You are perceiving your own behavior. Uh, number two, you're perceiving, so that gets internalized, the perception of, of your own behavior. Number two, the perception of your subjective experience, you know, your emotions, your thoughts, the meanings you have about it, the impulses, the, the physiological sensations, blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's number two. Number three is you internalize the perception of the other's behavior, whether it's overt behavior or subtle. Number four, you internalize the perception of your best guess regarding the other's subjective experience. So you're, depending on your age, you're, you're trying to guess what is going on in the other person's head. Whether you're accurate or not is irrelevant, but you per, whatever your best guess is, you, you perceive that and and you internalize it. Number five, perception, you, you internalize the perception of the circumstances regarding the interactions. You know, like what what's the context? What what's the lighting like? What clothes is she wearing? What's the temperature like? You know, all these kinds of you know, what's the what am I smelling in this moment? And again, you know, I'm using the word perception because we distort and perceive our reality in infinite ways, depending on our personality or our mood or our health or our cultural viewpoint and so on. And so we're not actually internalizing the reality of this experience. We're, we're, we're only internalizing the perception of what's happening, our perception. It's a very critical uh, thing to understand. So... Again, as long as there's sufficient emotional energy in a relational experience, this whole five-part thing is, is internalized as a whole. The whole interaction becomes one unit uh, that is internalized into the psyche and into the personality, you know, one interject. And if this internalization, if this experience as we're internalizing it, if, if it's similar to a previously internalized relationship, then this new experience that we're having right now is added to the original representation. So, uh, and it either bolsters or modifies it. So when you're 12 months old, you, you know, have been held and fed by your mom countless times. And so when you have this, this experience at 12 months, you, you internalize that experience, but it, it, it's not a new experience. It just bolsters an already established internalization that you originally internalized probably the day you were born. Okay, so let's break this out a little bit further here. So let's, let's say a, a mother smile. I'm usually mother just because, it, I don't know, just it could be father, obviously, or someone who doesn't identify with either gender, but just go with me on this. So, for example, a, a mother smiles warmly at her child, okay, and the child feels paid attention to and loved and feels good. So 
So just let's just take a moment like that. Like the the child is in the crib, the mother comes into the bedroom and smiles warmly, you know, says, Oh, you're up or something like that. Now, so let's break this out in terms of in this moment, what is internalized? And again, if if there's a previous internalization that has already happened regarding this, uh, this new experience is just piled on top of that uh, previous internalization. So again, number one, we we perceive the self's behavior. So if I'm the infant, I'm, I'm perceiving that I'm, I'm looking at my mother and I might even be kind of like slightly jumping up and down, you know, like, Ooh, mom's here and I'm jumping up and down. So I'm perceiving that about my behavior. It's like uh, I'm noticing that that's what I'm doing. Okay. Number two, I I perceive my subjective experience. So in that moment, as a 12 month old infant, I'm, I'm feeling safe. I'm feeling loved and I'm feeling warm inside. And I notice I have an impulse to reach out to her and have her hold me. Now, all this is happening unconsciously, by the way. It's not like the 12-month-old is saying, I feel safe and loved. You know, there's no, there's no language yet anyway. So it's all, this is all out, outside of the conscious. You know, some of it could be noticed if the child actually looked at it, but not a lot of 12-month-olds are going to look at that. But the, the point is, is that all of this is, is an unconscious process. The, 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 the feeling of safety is an unconscious feeling for the most part. And the perception of that feeling is also uh, outside of the conscious awareness. Anyway, number three, the perception of the other's behavior. So I'm looking at my mom and I, and I'm like, Oh, uh, she's, she's smiling at me and she's talking in a certain way and she's coming toward me. That's what I'm noticing. Number four, the perception of my best guess as to what's going on in my mom's head and what her subjective experience is. So I might perceive, I might guess that what's going on in her mind is that she wants to be with me and that she's happy to see me or something and that she has love for me. And then number five, the perception of the circumstances surrounding the interaction. So, uh, you know, I'm sitting in my crib with my stuffed animals and it's a, you know, a sunny afternoon or something. So all of that that I just described is internalized as one unit. They're not, they're not broken up. They, they, they enter the psyche connected to each other. And that's important for, for later in terms of understanding how this plays out later on in life. Um, so again, some people refer this to as an interject. I, I'm calling it an internalization. I used to call it an internalized relationship representation or internalized construct. Uh, but um, so it doesn't really matter what term we use as long as you understand the, the meaning of it. Okay, so now again, let's say that my mom does this to me thousands of times over the first few years of my life. When she sees me, she smiles and she comes toward me and she talks to me in a certain way. And each time I have this interaction, it's internalized and becomes, and it bolsters that whatever internalization that is the the internalization of my mom coming toward me and and loving me and being warm toward me and me feeling safe and loved and paid attention to um now each time it happens there might be subtle differences there might be new things added to it like maybe one time 
my mom is singing a particular song. And so part of the interject, part of the internalization, there's a slight little association with that, with that song. Or maybe she's wearing a particular kind of soft clothing or something as she, as she picks me up. And so that, that, that sensation or that, the way that that fabric feels is also associated with the internalization, even though she wasn't always wearing that particular fabric. Um, maybe one time or you know, maybe 3% of the time, uh, I sense or it seems to me I perceive that my mom is a little frustrated and that she doesn't have time for me. And so I, I perceive that as part of it. You know, she's coming toward me and I like that. But I'm also getting the sense that she's a little miffed that she can't go back to her soap operas or, or whatever. And that now adds a little tinge to that interject. So there can be a lot of different things. I'm providing you know, a very simple interject, but there's so many different kinds of experiences that we have as we grow up that are internalized. When our parents yell at us, when our parents neglect us, you know, the thing I like to say is all of us have been left crying and no one came for us. You know, when, when we were three months old, when we were nine months old, when we were two years old, we've all been distressed and crying and no one came or they didn't come fast enough. And in that time, we internalized an experience, which was a perception of the self as being afraid and distressed, and the perception of the other as just not being there, being absent and being neglecting, and and it feel and it hurts, you know. And so all of us have had that. There's there's no child that emerges from childhood without a, a significant portion of their life feeling as though they're being put upon and neglected and being treated unfairly. It's just, it's just part of being a kid, really. And so we've all internalized a wide variety, both positive and negative interjects. It's not possible to emerge from childhood without a variety of, of both positive and negative interjects. You know? it's, it's why we all have issues. <laughs> it's why we all need therapy, right? Because it's just not possible to have a perfect childhood. Okay, so why do we care about why why is this so central to the idea of of my model of psychotherapy? You know, why do I care about these internalizations? You know, is it is it just like this intellectual thing like, oh, I have these no. It's actually extremely predictable um or it provides a very compelling and reasonable and useful way of looking at why we do a lot of the things that we do, particularly like the strange behavior. So let me explain. So these internalized uh, relationship representations, these internalizations of these relationships that we have, uh, they manifest in, a, in our adult life in the following seven ways. The following seven ways. So number one, they basically become the basis of our personality. Without these internalizations, uh, we, we would not have a personality. Uh, we would have a temperament for personality, but but in my model, these internalizations are the basis of the majority of the way in which we see ourselves, the majority of our impulses, and or the way we direct our impulses, if that makes any sense. And so all those things. Uh, okay, number two. Uh, these internalizations, uh, you know, if they're difficult, if we have difficult internalizations, then they necessitate defenses to cope with the internal conflict. So defense mechanisms 
are primarily created by our psyche to deal with these internal with these with difficult internalizations like being abused, neglected, criticized, this kind of thing. And a lot of psychopathology symptoms are the result of these defenses. And I'll explain this in a second. But um, so let's say a mother is critical of her child. So a mother is being critical of her child. That the child develops a a strong internalization of that experience over time, uh, and that that internalization, in short, can be described as um, other criticizing me and myself feeling ashamed of myself. And so that that relationship of the perception of the, the important thing that I don't think maybe I'm emphasizing enough is that not only do we internalize our mothers, but we internalize a perception of ourself. That's very important. You know, it's a linked dyad that we internalize because we're not only perceiving our parents, but we're also perceiving the self. And so it's this dyad that gets internalized because uh, if we understand it that way, then it, it lends itself more to projective identification, which I'll get to more in a second. But anyway, so let's say a, a mother uh, is, is being critical and the, the child internalizes this criticizing mother and ashamed self. And that becomes this, this internalization and, you know, and becomes a fixed part of, of the personality. And over time, this internalization becomes conflictual. It starts to fight with itself. There's these internal mental dynamics that are fighting with itself. There's this voice that's been internalized that is saying, you're stupid, how come you did that? You're not good at things. And then there's this other part of the self that is ashamed of itself and feels bad. And there's this, this raging conflict that's happening inside of the self, along with all the other internalizations. And this internal conflict leads to symptoms like you can become depressed over time or you can start to self-criticize or you might withdraw from relationships. You might avoid relationships because you're, you're scared of being ashamed of yourself. Or you might become critical of other people, overly critical. Or it can re result in transference, which I'll get to more in a second as well. But So there's all these different things that can, that can happen as a result of these, um, these defenses that need to be enacted to deal with that internal strife. Okay. Number three, um, so again, the way that this manifests as an adult is basically the basis of personality. Number two, it necessitates defenses. Number three is it helps us cope. So when we have a, uh, when, you know, all, whenever we're stressed out. So let's see if I can explain this uh, in a very uh, short way. So when you are very young, you know, three months, six months, you don't have the ability to soothe yourself or your, your ability to soothe yourself is very limited, and whenever you're upset, you require, you need to have your parents or your caregivers come to you and, and soothe you. When you're alone, you, you will scream and wail and cry until someone comes to be with you. And so over time, as you internalize this soothing other, and this other person continues to soothe you and, and you you know, your, your parents come to you when you're crying and, and care for you and hold you and, you know, sing nice songs to you and give you your food and your comfort and, you know, all this take, you know, un, you know, change your diapers, all this kind of stuff. And you internalize this soothing other and a soothed self, right? Well, when you're older, say 10 years old or 50 years old, 
and you're feeling distressed and you're feeling alone and you're feeling upset and you're feeling scared, well, you don't typically, under normal circumstances, you don't scream and wail and wait for your mom to come. What you do is you go to your inner resources. So you're calling upon this this internalization. So, you know, just taking myself, for example, my, my parents were, were very good parents and they took care of me um, a lot and, and um, you know, came to me when I was, um, uh, when I needed them. <laughs> and so as an adult, when I am upset and when I'm feeling ashamed or when I'm feeling uh, sad, I can call upon my inner ability to soothe myself. So I, I might say to myself, well, you know, Kirk, you're a good person or, well, you know, Kirk, you'll get through this or, well, you know, um, everything's going to be okay. And I might even um, rub the back of my neck or something. And so this I can do because my parents did it to me first and I internalized that. And then I am able to do it to myself. I'm able to soothe myself because I internalized a soothing other. So that's another way in which internalizations manifest in your adult life. So they become a basis of your personality. They motivate defenses. They help us cope. And then number four, it affects how we perceive other people. For example, let's say that your mother spoke in a nice voice and you internalize this as a soothing experience. And as, as an adult, when you hear a similar voice in a similar inflection, you become soothed. So the voice might not actually be soothing, but you, because of your past experiences, you see it as soothing because of the way in which you internalize that early experience. Um, another example is your, your, family had, went, your family went camping. You know, your family goes camping. And while you were camping, it was one of the few times in your family where you could really just relax and have contact with all your family. And when when you were at home, there was more stress and there was more chores to do and everyone had schoolwork or your parents were at work all the time or something. But when you were, when you were camping, it was like 24-7 warmth with your family. And so as an adult, when you go camping – you perceive other people in that context to be actually closer to you than they actually are. I bring up this example partially because my family never went camping when I was a kid. And so when I, we would go on trips, but we would stay with our, my parents grew up in Spokane, Washington. So most of their, their parents and their relatives lived in Spokane. So every summer we would go out there for a week or two. And so uh, and for whatever reason, my parents just aren't into camping. Um, uh, and so uh, I never camped. The only time I ever went camping was when my friends would drag me uh, to do it. And as a person who lives in Seattle, it's a, it's a bit of a, um, I'm a bit of a pariah. And, and people always say like, oh, Kirk, you just haven't, you just haven't had the right camping experience. And, and the best I can think of is, well, all of you had wonderful experiences during your formative years in which you were camping and I did not. And so when I go camping, all I experience is all the discomfort and the annoyance and the fact that I can't shower and just all this stuff. I, I just recently, you know, had, the eclipse was recent and I went down to central Oregon and um, stayed in a big dust bowl and didn't have any showers and there was no bathrooms. There was just porta potties. It, you know, it was awful. And, you know, it was a major ordeal for me <laughs> to do 
do that to go camp, but I desperately wanted to see the eclipse. And so I was willing to go through it for that. But, but anyway, so the point is, is that, you know, if you associate camping with love and with togetherness and you go camping, then you're going to feel all those feelings again with those people. So, um, now, camping is a lot of things to a lot of people. Some people go camping by themselves, so we can't really generalize in that way. But um, anyway, I hope you get my point. Um, here's another one that often comes up in therapy, which is, let's say whenever your father raised his voice, let's say he, you know, your father would have a couple of drinks, uh, and he would get a, his voice would get slurry, and he would he would get uh, and he would get loud. And then sometimes he would be explosively abusive to you. Well, then as an adult, when you hear someone slurring their words or when you hear someone raise their voice, you become terrified, even though that person is not actually a threat. But because you, ha- you associate, because you internalize that experience, PTSD is basically just a version of this. It's just a, you know, a manifest, a, a version of this internalization of experience, but Anyway, um, because you internalize this, uh, this father who was slurring his words and drinking and abusive and raising his voice, and then yourself as a terrified, abused, harmed, uh, scared, insecure other, and, you, and this over time becomes a fixed internalization in your psyche, whenever you, you know, have, whenever, you ex- whenever anyone exhibits anything close to that behavior, that internalization becomes activated and you feel terrified. Um, another, uh, uh, in, another example of this in terms of how we perceive other people is, let's say whenever your mother would re- reach out to you for affection, so your mother is saying, come here, let's sit next to me. And let's say your mother also would engage in some subtle rejection or criticism of you. So she, you know, come here. How come, how come you never sit by mommy? And, or how come... How come you you never uh, come? Do you not love me anymore? Come here. You know, the, those kind of like mixed messages. And then as an adult, when someone reaches out to you for affection, they, they say, you know, hey, how about a hug? You reflexively push them away because you're trying to protect yourself. So there's all these different ways in which these representations affect the way we see other people So and react to them. So again, these internalizations are pars- part of our personality, number one. Number two, they become, we need defenses to deal with them. Number three, they help us cope. Number four, they affect how we see other people for better, for worse. And number five, they influence sexual and romantic attraction and relationship patterns, um, which, you know, of course makes total sense. Uh, so we don't need to explain that one that, that uh, deeply. Number six, and here's a very important one here is that these internalizations become recreated or reenacted in adult life. This is what Freud called the repetition compulsion, kind of. Uh, more recent literature will re- refer to this as the core conflictual relationship theme, or the CCRT, uh, or an, I think in relational psychoanalysis they call it enactments. Um, I, I just use reenacting relationships. <laughs> I don't like all these um, terms. I just like I like terms that make sense. That's why I like the word internalization because I feel like that, that for most people they're like, oh, I think I know what you mean by that. Um, this is a very important idea. The older people get, the, the more they realize they tend to create the same relationships wherever they go, right? 
This is one of the most powerful aspects of psychodynamic theory and one in which other psychotherapy theories don't really have a way of explaining. Um, it, you know, all of us, you know, if we're old enough, you can look back on your life and go like, wow, I've had a lot of relationships in this vein. Or I, I, my fights with the, my five of my, of my last romantic partners, all the fights seem to be around this issue. And that's because when, that's because of our fixed internalizations and the sort of internalizations that are difficult for us. So, for example, let's say a woman, uh, she's in her 40s and she figures out that all of her romantic partners that she's had in her life are generally incompetent. You know, and so she asks herself, why would I be attracted to all these incompetent men, all these incompetent men? Because in my conscious mind, I hate incompetent men. But why, in the end, are all these men so incompetent? Well, it's because of this repetition compulsion or this um, this need to recreate these, these past relationships. So uh, to be more specific, the, re- the relationship that we internalize. So again, say again, critical. So your 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 parent is being critical of you and then you are feeling ashamed and so you internalize that relationship you internalize this critical other and this criticized self you internalize that and then you need to create that dyad later on and when you recreate it you might identify with one side or the other so as you recreate it you you want to re- recreate all the different aspects of it the tone of voice, the circumstance, the, the emotional uh, circumstances. And so when you, so say, say I grew up with a critical parent and I uh, internalized this critical other and a criticized self. Well, I can recreate it in two main different ways. I can recreate a relationship in which someone's criticizing me and so I've recreated it from that angle, or I, re- I can recreate the relationship by criticizing someone else and making someone else feel like the way I did when I was a kid, or I can make, or I can be in a relationship with someone who is like my own parent. Do you know what I mean? So that's why it's important to recognize that we internalize the relationship, not just the other person, because it helps to understand when we recreate these relationships, sometimes we identify with the side that was us in the past. And sometimes we identify with the other and make the other person identify with what we felt like in the past. Okay. So why do we do this? You know, why, why do we reenact our relationships? Well, there's, there's four main reasons. The first one is just for comfort. You know, the devil, you know, better the devil, you know, than the devil you don't. So a lot of times, even though our past relationships weren't so great, We'll recreate them in our later life because we're familiar with them. They're comfortable for us. You know, don't underestimate our fear of the unknown. And I've seen this before. You know, this is why people who grow up with abusive parents will often uh, be attracted to abusive spouses. It's kind of weird, right? It's always this. This is this is one of this simple little example is why psychodynamic theory is so powerful because no other theory really. Uh, explains this. I guess you could say behaviorism could maybe provide some explanation, but psychodynamic theory really provides a very powerful and and compelling model for understanding this. You know, if you grew up with a physically abusive father, why in the world would you want to marry a physically abusive husband? 
That doesn't make any sense, right? You know, you know firsthand how terrible physical abuse is. Why in the world would you marry or, you know, be involved with 10 different abusive men? Why would that be? Well, that's because of this of this repetition compulsion. And one of the reasons is because it's comfortable. It's, it's like, well, I know what that looks like. And if someone's not abusive, I really don't, this is all unconscious, remember. But so the ego is saying, well, I really don't know what, what it's like to be in a relationship that doesn't have abuse in it. And therefore a relationship without abuse is scary to me because I don't know what it's like. It's sort of like, when we go traveling, say you go to some very different culture, like you go to India or something, if you're a mainstream American, and you, you travel to India and you're just like, where am I? What am I doing? Well, there might not be anything inherently dangerous about where you're at, but you don't feel safe because you don't know how to predict what's happening. So even though the you know, India can be a wonderful place and, you know, plenty of people who live there feel fine about it and don't feel threatened. When you're walking around there, if you're mainstream American, you're just going to be on edge because you're just, you're, even though your intellectual mind is probably saying, well, you know, everything's fine. Everything's gonna be okay. But when we can't predict the future, it becomes upsetting to us. And so sometimes we just, we just recreate our past relationships in a dysfunctional way or functional for that matter, just because it just, it, it lowers our anxiety because it's, it's predictable. Um, okay. So that's the first reason for comfort. Number two is we recreate things because of an unconscious attempt to rework a difficult internalization. And this is, this is a very important idea. Um, this is perhaps the main reason worth discussing. We're, we're always looking throughout our lives. We're always looking to, to change and diminish our painful internalizations. We're always looking to bolster our positive internalizations. This is all done subconsciously, by the way. So it's not, it's not a, it's not, I mean, unconsciously, it's not a, it's not a conscious thing. So, you know, say I have an internalization of a critical other and a criticized self. I also have another internalization of a parent who was caring for me and loving for me and a feeling of safety. So I have the so I have this negative internalization and this positive internalization. Well, throughout my life, I'm constantly trying to recreate my past relationships to so that they will go a positive direction and I'll be able to diminish that critical internalization and bolster the caring and nurturing one. And one of the ways I can do that is by finding relationships that look very similar to the ones that I had growing up because that, that makes it much more connected to that particular internalization, right? And so it's all unconscious is the thing, you know? Um, and this is one of the main reasons why people recreate these relationships because they're, they're, they're trying to see, well, if, will this time be different, you know? So for instance, Say you have an abusive parent and you have that internalization and then you find an abusive person to marry and then your unconscious is hoping maybe this time they won't abuse me and I can, uh, you know, let's put this to the test and, and let's really see if this person cannot abuse me and then I can begin to trust people. Now, of course, you see the failing in this logic for, uh, for the most part. If you're, 
if you're going to recreate the abusive relationship, then it's going to become abusive and it's not going to be positive. And so this is, you know, this is the unconscious sort of lame attempt at trying to uh, cure themselves, but it actually backfires by bolstering the negative interject, if that makes any sense. Anyway. Okay. So a, a third reason as to, as to why we recreate our past relationships is because we want to make the internal external. This is a complicated thing, but in short, when, when we have these internal representations, these internal dyads that are conflicting, you know, this criticized other, criticizing other and criticized self, they become uh, uh, conflictual in our own psyche. They're fighting in our unconscious. And it's hard to deal with it when it's in there. And so we, we want to make it external as a way of expelling it from our psyche, as a way of, of making it external so that we don't have to deal with it internally. It basically just distracts us from it, you know. So again, we, we recreate our past relationships, either functionally or dysfunctionally, because it's comfortable, the devil you know. Uh, number, that's number one. Number two, we're trying to rework. We're trying to uh, have a new experience. We're trying to heal ourselves often to no avail. And we're also trying to make the internal external. All right. Um, I'm on a number of different numbering systems. <laughs> so let's get back to the other numbering systems in terms of um, how these internalized uh, things become ex- or these internalizations manifest in our adult life. Um, this is the last one. Number seven is that internalizations motivate behavior. Uh, I probably should just sort of glance over that because I'm getting a little bogged down here. But um, so again, the, the internalized relationship representations, these internalizations, they, they manifest in adult life in a, in a number of ways. Number one, they're a part of a personality. Number two, they necessitate defenses because of the difficult ones. Number three, they, the positive ones help us cope. Number four, they affect how we see other people. They affect our biases. Number five, and by the way, the biases thing can be related to racism and all that stuff. Okay. Number five, uh, they influence our attraction romantically and sexually and friend-wise. Number six, we reenact them later in life. And number seven, it motivates our behavior. Now, as a little critique of all this, the, the notion of internalization is, is often critiqued by people in the relational psychoanalytic world because it implies that there's an outside of the mind and an inside of the mind. You know, to internalize something implies that there's a barrier between the psyche and the and the outside world. And as we talked about before, in a lot of ways, explained by smarter people than me, uh, there the self is not contained in the psyche. It, it the, the self is contextual, and so this notion of internalization is is problematic in that way. But honestly, I don't have a problem with that. As long as I just keep that in mind, I think the the metaphor still stands. Okay, so again, we, in this model, assume that there's a mind. We assume mental dynamics. We assume there's a personality. We assume, we assume the personality is determined by the past. Number five, we assume there's an unconscious. Number six, we assume subjectivity. We assume inner subjectivity. We assume an attachment and its theory. And we assume that uh, relationships, early relationships and subsequent relationships are internalized. And that's number nine. Number 10, we assume in this concept called countertransference. 
I've done several episodes on countertransference, so go to Psychology in Seattle for that list, for the list of all the episodes and search for countertransference. Um, the, you know, there's so much to say about countertransference, but in my model, I define countertransference very simply as any feeling, thought, or impulse that the therapist has in response to the client. So uh, this means that, you know, you have countertransference for, for me and, and a subsection of others, uh, the definition it has to include the the clause in response to the client. So if you if you're just in a bad mood and you enter the therapy session because you're in a bad mood, that's not countertransference. That's just that's just you in a bad mood. But if you are working with someone and they provoke, they make you feel stupid because they've internalized a, a, a you know say their parents made them feel stupid and so they in turn make you feel stupid. Then um, that's uh, countertransference. And so there's lots of examples there, but. Uh, so that's another assumption is that in therapy, clients will make you feel certain things. Number 11, awareness helps. So in a lot of different other psychotherapy theories, they will actually explicitly say that awareness or, and self-awareness and interpretation is use is useless. They'll say like, what, what does it matter that you, why, you know, the, all, most of the humanistic psychotherapies, cognitive therapies, behavioral ther- therapies, systemic therapies, the pretty much all the other therapies will say that uh, awareness means nothing and that if you want real change, uh, awareness doesn't help. But I'm here to tell you that's silly. Um, now, does awareness always help? Absolutely not. There, there are plenty of times where I've had clients supremely aware of what's happening and completely powerless to change it. So there's that. But I will tell you from personal experience and professional experience that sometimes becoming aware of something absolutely helps. And, uh, you know, the, the knowledge of yourself is actually can, can be very powerful. Um, for, for example, for myself, I have been in therapy, you know, for many, many years and have contemplated my own issues and uh, asked people how they feel about me and, you know, what my personality comes across to them as. And, that self-awareness has def, you know, that exploration has definitely led to me understanding my impulses. So when I have a particular impulse, I can, I can think about it and say, well, based on my self-awareness, this probably means X, Y, and Z. And so maybe I should be looking at it this way and maybe I should do this to cope with it. Whereas before I knew all that stuff, I, I, I was powerless over those react, over those reactions. So that's another assumption in this model is that awareness and interpretation actually does help. Okay, so again, um, we have you got your mind, you got mental dynamics, personality, determinism, unconscious, subjectivity, intersubjectivity, attachment, internalizations, countertransference, awareness, and defenses. And I think this is the last the last thing I'm going to talk about because it takes forever to talk about. Yeah. So this is, this is the 12. Apparently I have, I have 12 major assumptions in my bottle. So defenses. And since this episode, I think is almost two hours long already, I'm going to do an abbreviated I, uh, discussion of defenses. I think, I don't know. We'll see what happens, but anyway, def- uh, the, the assumptions in this, and this is particular to psychodynamic theory, right? No other th- uh, well, the other theories will occasionally incorporate defenses, but for the most part, psychodynamic uh, theory is um, – its defense is essential to it, and they're the ones who invented it. So um, 
for the most part, you could argue that other people influence. But anyway, all right. the, the definition of defense is, is that they help us cope with anxiety or pain or fear or threat or danger or um, something that's difficult. Uh, basically, the, the defenses prevent us from being overwhelmed with uh, what is happening and w- what the re- quote-unquote reality is. They they often operate on an unconscious level, although they can be a conscious thing. Um, and as I talked about earlier, your defenses become a part of your personality. So you, you, people tend to use defenses in predictable ways, which means that basically part of your personality can be defined by the defenses that you use. Um, and again, defenses can be problematic or they can be they can be functional too. It, it really just depends. Okay, so here here are the here's the common defenses that I think about. Number one is denial. This is really a main defense, and really a lot of the other defenses you could say are basically a version of denial in a certain way. But anyway, examples of this are you know your uh, someone dies and your mind tries to forget it. You know, it's just like uh, no, they didn't die. They didn't. They're they're still alive. They're or they're. They're just on vacation or something. You know, this is a denial. Or say you're in a really bad marriage and you just can't cope with that. It's very painful to think about or very scary to think about divorce. And so your brain will go into denial about it. So, no, my relationship is great, you know. So that kind of thing. All right, another defense, wishful thinking. This is a lesser form of denial, essentially. But examples are you're in a difficult marriage and you're like, well, you know, my spouse will change over time. Even though there's no there's no evidence of that, it's basically denial, right? You're 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 wishfully thinking that something will change in the future that is not likely to change because it's because again people don't engage in defenses for no reason. They engage in defenses because of legitimate logical reasons. When, for example, in the example of being in a difficult marriage, the prospect of getting divorced for many people is very anxiety provoking. You don't know what's going to happen. It might cost a lot of money. Will the kids be traumatized? There's just a lot of consequences to divorce. And so there's a lot of reasons why you would develop defenses to protect yourself from having to face the fact that divorce might be in the cards. Okay. Uh, another defense here, withdrawal. Withdrawal from the world, from others. So you you distance yourself from other people. So one example here is when your parents are fighting, say you're, a, you're 10 and your parents are fighting and you withdraw by falling asleep. Or let's say you just with you, you know you smoke pot every night and listen and you know watch cartoons every night because you just want to avoid other people. So this is a defense against rejection and that kind of stuff. Another defense here is I'm skipping down the list for time conversion or somatization or <coughs> or hypochondriasis. Essentially, you know, example here is like you you're stressed out at work and it converts itself. The stress converts itself into back pain. Another defense here is dissociation. Uh, There's the clinical dissociation in the DSM-5, and there's also just like general dissociation, a way of separating yourself from reality in order to cope with it, often associated with trauma. Another defense here is repression. I did a whole episode on repression, I think, in relation to that documentary on Netflix. If you want to listen to that, go ahead and listen to that. Freud was, was fascinated with repression. Um, and the classic example of repression is you're sexually abused as a child, and so you don't want to think about that because it's very painful to think about that, so you repress those memories. 
Another uh, defense here is regression. So it's when we regress to an earlier phase. So every parent has seen their children regress when their 10-year-old is stressed out or afraid of something. They will regress to the age of five or something. They'll whine. You'll, it's really fascinating to see in kids, actually, because you'll see them use language and behavior that they discarded years before. So you'll see a 10-year-old, when they regress, use similar phrases that they used when they were four. And again, this is all done unconsciously. It's not like a 10-year-old says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consciously regress right now. It's done because the ego needs to do it in order to cope with, with the difficult situation. Um, another uh, defense is intellectualization. This is um, similar to other defenses, but basically it's when you have a distressing emotion or a distressing situation and, it's, and a way of protecting yourself from the knowledge of it, you you intellectualize it. You get very logical or not logical, but you just become very academic, I suppose, about it. You know, say your wife dies from cancer. And so in, it's very difficult to deal with that naturally. And so as a maybe even a functional offense, you really start to learn about cancer. You read all the research you can about cancer. And this protects you until you have the ego strength to actually feel the feelings. Um, another defense here, let's see, skipping down the list here. Uh, displacement, this is an important one. Uh, it's often confused with projection. Examples of this are when my boss yells at me at work, but I, I can't really yell back at him because I'm worried I'm going to get fired. So when I come home, I kick my dog. I've never done that before, but that's just a classic example I talk about. Um, another one is my mother hurt me as a child. My mother, my mother, you know, didn't hurt me, but let's say that happened hypothetically is my mother made me feel terrible as a child. And so I displace my anger at my mom toward my therapist. So as, as an adult, I'm yelling at my therapist, but really I want to be yelling at my mom. Uh, let's see other defenses here. Passive aggression. I did a whole episode on passive aggressive personality. You can listen to that. Um, acting out is another one I, I want to talk about because it, it, it's a term that's typically used in a different way. Often when people say acting out, they, they mean a child is misbehaving or externalizing or something. But the original definition of acting out is a behavioral enactment of unconscious drives that are forbidden by the superego. So, for example... If, if someone is sexually abused, they might act out sexually to cope with the difficult feelings, right? Um, another example here is someone humiliates you and hurts your feelings. So, you know, say you're at work and someone just humiliates you in a meeting and makes you feel like an idiot and your feelings are hurt. And in that moment, you have an impulse to harm him. You, you have an impulse to... to, um, uh, to uh, reach across the table and strangle him, right? But instead of dealing with it in a mature way, like talking to him and say, hey, that kind of hurt my feelings or just soothing yourself, uh, you you either reach across the table and actually throttle him or on the way out into the parking lot, you slash his tires. And so this is acting out your internal wish to harm him back. 
And um, your super your superego is saying, "Don't do that thing. That's not good for society. You need to deal with it in a more mature way." And you're you're pushing back against your super superego and actually allowing yourself to have that. And and that's called a a defense because it's a way of trying to d- defend against the pain that is experienced when your super super ego is battling it out with yourself. You know. Anyway. Um, skipping down another, um, a defense mechanism is humor. This can be both functional and dysfunctional, right? So it, humor can be a defense in a functional way. Like whenever I think about, um, I've talked about this before on the podcast, like when my head hits the pillow at night and I'm about to fall asleep for whatever reason, my mind often goes to some very gruesome images. <laughs> I have these very, uh, just like, oh, okay, when, I, when I'm, when you know, when I'm old and I'm dying, I'm going to have all these tubes in me and people are going to be cut, cutting me up. And, um, and then when I die, I'm going to be buried and like have all these, all these like very <laughs> vivid feelings. And the, my defense against that is to laugh at myself. I'm just like, ha ha ha, that's helpful to think about Kirk. Like, and, and that laughter uh, sometimes I laugh out loud <laughs> as I'm trying to fall asleep, and that defense absolutely helps in that situation. Uh, humor can be used in a dysfunctional way, like when I'm uncomfortable in a social situation and I say a, a dumb joke, for instance, a dad joke or something, and that is, um, I guess, potentially functional, but it could also be dysfunctional in that uh, there are other ways of more mature ways of dealing with discomfort in, in situations like that. Okay. Um, so again, before I talk about this final uh, uh, most important defense, I just want to define defenses again. Defenses are to help us cope with anxiety or pain or distress. And they are enacted usually unconsciously to help us, you know, cope with what's happening externally and internally. There's a, we, we have a lot of fears in life and a lot of distress, a lot of threats to ourself, and we need defenses to protect from that. Okay, so let's talk about the most important defense, which is projective identification. This is a big defense in my model, and it, it has to do, again, with uh, how we internalize our early relationships and then uh, recreate them later in life. So again, as I talked about earlier, we um, internalize relationships, right? We internalize these dyads, and these internalizations manifest in our adult lives in a number of ways. They're, again, the basis of a personality. They uh, Difficult internalizations will, res- will necessitate defenses to cope with them. Helpful or positive internalizations help us cope the and internalizations affect how we perceive other people. They affect our relationships, our attractions. We reenact them in, in later in life, and they motivate our behavior. And, and all this is related to projective identification. The first thing we need to do, though, is to define projection. Uh, people often misuse the term projection. I was just watching a, an episode of Modern Family, and they use the word, the term projection. I was like, "Ugh, stop using it that way." <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I suppose you know people can use language however they want to, but just understand that the general use of the word projection is not the psychoanalytic way. Um, usually, what the 
uh, public when they're using the word projection, what, what they, if we were to translate that into psychoanalytic language, they're actually meaning distortion or misjudgment or displacement or something, you know, like if someone said, you know, I don't know if I'm projecting here, but you know, you really seem to, um, hate, uh, politicians or something, you know, in other words, uh, the person is wondering if his judgment of the other person is correct. And he's not sure if he's misjudging the other person. This is not projection. This is distortion or it's misjudgment or it's um, misreading somebody, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, the, the, the psychoanalytic definition of projection is when we have an unwanted feeling or an unwanted aspect of ourself, <clears throat> some, some unwanted thing that's happening inside of us, we displace it onto another person where they then appear as a threat from uh, where, you know, so for example, you know, um, someone comes up to someone and and is like, you seem really angry right now. You know, have you ever had that happen to you or or someone just walks up to you and is like, you know, you seem really angry or you seem really tired or something. And that's a, that might be a, it might be just a misjudgment, but it might also be a projection in that, they are the ones feeling angry on the inside, but they don't like the fact that they're feeling angry. They have a, they have a conflictual relationship with their own anger reactivity. And so they, they fantasize unconsciously that, that other people are feeling angry and then they have a reaction against that. And so um, that's one example of projection. Another classic one is you have a, you know, a closeted gay person who's a conservative Republican politician, and they see everyone else as being perverted. Okay, so they have a they have a conflictual inside. That's you know that you know they have a conflicted. So just to break this down in terms of eternalizations, you have a a gay man, a gay teenager who grows up in a conservative area, and as he's growing up, <clears throat> he expresses occasionally his his gay identity. And is, uh, you know, consistently made to feel terrible about himself by other people. And so he internalizes that, those experiences of expressing himself, expressing his true nature, and having other people humiliate him or harm him or threaten him or put him down or, you know, tell him he's going to hell or whatever. And so he internalizes that dyad with all those various different people that those relationships create an internalization where there's this conflict between his 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 homosexual nature and other people hating him and so what he does is he will project that outward by identifying with essentially the abuser and attacking people for being gay and and calling them names that people called him names if that makes any sense okay so um the main thing here is that with projective identification, again, we, we are recreating the past. We're recreating these, these past relationships. Again, as I talked about, we, we reenact our past relationships because it's comfortable, because the devil you know. Number two, we're unconsciously trying to create a corrective experience, often to no avail. And then number three, we need to externalize an internal conflict because it it feels better in that way. Um, Now, to make the process of projective identification easier, maybe I need to explain this a little bit more in depth before moving forward. Um, 
Okay. So again, let's say that I grow up with a critical other, you know, a critical parent and I feel ashamed of myself and I feel criticized. And so over time, as this, you know, intense emotional experience is experienced in real time, it bolsters and builds up a very intense internal representation and interject inside my psyche of criticizing other and a criticized self. So there's that, there's that dyad, a criticizing person and a ashamed person, and they're linked. Okay. And so <clears throat> as an adult, I will grow up and I might want to recreate that relationship because it's, because one, it's comfortable, two, because I'm trying to create a corrective experience, and three, because I need to externalize. So let's break this down. So as I uh, go into the world, um, my internal psyche is dealing with this ongoing conflict that's inside my mind. The original conflict was happening externally in, in terms of someone criticizing me, but now it's inside my psyche. And there's a side of me, there's, a, there's a, a, a dynamic in my psyche that is fighting, a voice that is saying, you're stupid, or other people are stupid. People are stupid, including you. And then another side that is reacting to that, that is feeling ashamed and feeling criticized and feeling incompetent. And so <clears throat> I uh, move into the world as an adult, and I might recreate this relationship I might find a romantic partner who seems to uh, exhibit behavior that is easily criticizable. They are an airhead, so to speak, or they're not uh, particularly intelligent, or they have inconsistent ways of thinking. Maybe they're anxious and they, 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 when they talk, they say kind of silly things or something, inconsistent things. And so... I am attracted to that person. I'm like, ooh, you know. Now my unconscious, my conscious mind is thinking, I like this person. But my unconscious mind is thinking, ooh, this person is going to be a good person to be able to use my projective identification with because they're easily criticized. And you know, Kirk, you can identify with the criticizer, and you can you can engage in an externalization of this internal difficulty. And so, not only did I uh, unconsciously sniff this person out. But then I also start to subtly socialize them to uh, be criticizable. So I might kind of intimidate them in various different ways so they make mistakes and then I can uh, proceed to criticize them. All this is happening outside of my awareness. I, I don't, I don't want to be in a relationship that involves criticism, but, but that's what my unconscious needs. And again, the reason why I'm doing this is because I'm, re I'm recreating the past because it's comfortable. I'm familiar with what that looks like because in this hypothetical situation, the, the criticism that I went through was with an attachment figure. And so criticism is associated with attachment. And so in my adult attachments, I create uh, attachments that, are, that involve criticism because it's comfortable. The second reason is because I'm recreating this, this dyad because I unconsciously want it to go differently. Now, this is a kind of a weird thing to wrap your head around, but essentially what I'm trying to do unconsciously in this hypothetical is I'm recreating a situation in which you have a criticized other and a criticizing, and a criticizing person. 
it just so happens I'm identifying with, with the criticizing side. I'm, I'm identifying with the side that I originally internalized from outside of me, but now it's, now I'm identifying with it myself and, and I'm socializing someone to be the, to be the incompetent person that I'm criticizing. Now, unconsciously, I'm hoping that this will go differently and in, in two ways. I'm hoping that the incompetent person will not be incompetent. And I'm also unconsciously hoping that I will not criticize them. And in, if either one or both of those things happens, then I can internalize this new thing that will feel good to me, that will be a more positive thing. Like, you know, say my partner does something stupid and I don't criticize them. And then I internalize this new thing that's like, oh, someone can, someone can make a mistake and not get criticized, and that's a positive thing. So I'm, I'm recreating this, this old relationship because I want a new, I want another result. I want to, I'm trying to f- find a more pleasant end result of that. But of course, that rarely works because when you precisely reenact your past relationships, they tend to repeat themselves. And so, so there's that. The third reason why I am recreating this relationship is because I need to externalize that internal conflict. You know, like I've been talking about, I have this internalization that's fighting with itself. And there are internal voices of, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, and I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. It's much easier to deal with this in general if it's external. If if I was to socialize someone to be the stupid one and then I call them stupid, even though this is not pleasant, no one wants to be in a relationship where they're calling someone stupid and they're dealing with someone who is stupid, right? But that is way more preferred than I'm stupid or, you know, there's a voice inside your head saying that you're stupid and there's a voice inside your head that's saying I'm stupid. It's much better to have that outside of you. And so that's why, that's the process. So again, because I had those early experiences of, of, being told I'm stupid and feeling stupid. I internalize that dyad. As an adult, I recreate it by finding someone who is socializable to, to act in stupid ways, quote-unquote stupid ways. And then I proceed to make them act in more stupid ways, quote-unquote stupid ways, and then I call them stupid. And, then, and I do all this, and I've completely recreated my relationship, and now I'm the person calling them stupid, and the other person is, is being called stupid. And I'm doing all this because it's comfortable, I'm trying to have a corrective experience, and because I'm externalizing an internal conflict in a defensive way. Now, the beauty of projective identification and the, be- the beauty of systems thinking is they, ca- they can be combined in that this other person that I have, I'm engaging with, this you know, romantic partner, is, also has internal representations, also has internalizations, Right. And so let's say that she grew up with, she also grew up with a criticized, criticizing parent. And that was a significant thing in her life. And so she internalized uh, this experience of being called dumb. You know, she, she's, her parents are like, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're dumb. And she's like, I'm dumb, I'm dumb, I'm dumb. And she internalizes that over time. And for whatever reason, as an adult, she prefers to, when she externalizes, when she recreates these relationships, she she just feels a little bit more comfortable being in the I'm dumb position and projecting out into someone else the uh, the criticizer. And so that's where her and I, our projective identifications mesh so well is because we both have the same internalization, the same relational trauma, and we both need to recreate it defensively, and we're both comfortable with that. 
but we both have a slight tendency to identify with one side or the other, which makes it, it more comfortable and more of a fit. And then we proceed to engage in that with each other. And, and then, you know, the cycle just continues. And we, we, we both are reenacting a past relationship. We both are doing that defensively. And then as we do that, we actually bolster that negative internalization because we're having more of the I'm dumb, you're dumb um, situation. And, and so, so that's why we have these relationship uh, patterns is because we're not aware of this and we just continue to do it over and over and over again. I hope that makes sense. And, and this, again, can apply to any kind of relationship. It can also be a positive thing. So you can actually socialize people to love you in the way that your parents loved you and that kind of stuff. But, you know, it could be around rejection or betrayal or cheating on you or alcoholism or abuse or sexual abuse or being um, distant or being invasive or, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can experience as a child that can be translated into an adult relationship and, and all of them are. So project, so, um, uh, so just to put a fine point on this is when you, when you have couples or families that are engaged, you know, have this projective identification system process, they mutually in, um, create each other, right? They're, Everyone is in is so so to just sort of pull this back a little even further is in a family, say a family of four, each one of those individuals, including the kids, already have internalizations and already are using projective identification and will engage and already have several internal internalizations that they need to project out and will all participate in each other's to help each other out unconsciously. And so you have all these projective identifications crisscrossing through the system um, all at the same time and all mutually sort of uh, creating each other. And that's where systems thinking comes in because once you understand projective identification, you understand how systems work, you, you can combine those in this really beautiful way that explains a lot about the way families interact. Okay. The last thing I'll say about projective identification is that it also plays out in psychotherapy. So as we uh, deepen the psychotherapeutic relationship, eventually the clients and the therapists' projective identifications will become part of that relationship. And so, for instance, I often talk with my supervisees about this and think about it myself, is say I have a client who... I am feeling, just sticking with the criticism, um, interject. Uh, say I have a client that I'm often criticizing in my mind. In my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know about this. Why does she do it that way? That's kind of dumb. Like, I think she should, you know, boy, you know, the way she dresses or, man, the, her voice or whatever the criticism is. Why does she, why did she do that? Or, man, I don't, I don't know if I like this woman. You know, all those thoughts that I'm having in my mind. Now, given the fact that I'm normally very compassionate and caring and I don't criticize people as a rule, if I'm having all these impulses and all these um, reactions to this person, um, it, this is the counter-transference bit, I have to wonder where is this coming from? Well, one of the possible places it's coming from is that the client is recreating their past relationship. They were criticized as a child and they're externalizing an internal problem by socializing me to criticize them. Now, this is done through very subtle and very, you know, covert, unconscious ways. 
the the way you can it's people always say well how how does one elicit someone to criticize them well you'd be surprised how how well people can do this unconsciously it's little things like let's see if i can come up with something you know let's say a client sits down and she's like um yeah so i i was at work the other day and my boss uh you know pulled me into his office and and he said that he he was going to have to pay me less, and and so I said okay, I, I guess that's okay. And then I left the office. Well, depending on the circumstances, that might be a way in which the client is trying to elicit criticism from you. Because as a therapist, you're going to feel like, well, wait, why didn't you fight back? Why are you being such a wet noodle? You should have told your boss to go to hell. So even though you're in your conscious mind, you're thinking, well, I'm looking out for my client in this moment. I am, I am caring. This is a caring thing. This is a caring thought. I don't want my client to be walked on, which could also be true. But there's another part of you that's, that's sort of disgusted with your client. Like, why did you do that? You know, stop. And this is a way that people will unconsciously socialize you to unconsciously feel the need to criticize them. So as I'm feeling all this criticism for this client, I might think, what relationship are they reenacting? And um, that's how projective identification plays out in the relationship. Okay, so now let's go. So that's all the, um, that's all the different things. (laughs) So again, uh, just to go over the 12 things we got, you got a mind, you have mental dynamics, you have personality, you have determinism, meaning the past determines the the, the present. You have your own, the idea of the unconscious, you have the ideas of subjectivity and intersubjectivity, the way two subjectivities come together and create a intersubjectivity. You have the, the vast uh, theory of attachment. You have internalizations of, of, of relationships. That's very powerful, too. You have the idea of countertransference. You have the idea that awareness helps. And you have this whole idea of defenses. Um, I guess the... F- final thing I should probably include in here is maybe number 13, the idea of corrective experiences. But anyway, so so let's go to technique now. How, uh, this isn't going to be that long, but uh, let's get into it here. How long is the episode? Oh, over two hours. Okay. So technique. I have conceptualized the technique of psychodynamic therapy in a number of different ways. And in previous podcast episodes, I've actually described this differently. But in going over uh, this uh, over this week, I've I've decided that I want to lump the technique into two different broad categories. Um, one is to increase self awareness. So the this there there are two pillars, and the first pillar is to increase self awareness, which is uh, not as important. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> which is not as important as the second pillar, which is to provide corrective emotional experiences. I consider the second pillar to be the main pillar of, of psychodynamic technique. But let's, let's, let's talk about the first one first, since it's fairly simple. So uh, in terms of technique, as a psychodynamic therapist, I try to increase my client's self-awareness. I try to help them understand themselves. This is done through collaborative exploration, particularly regarding their childhood relational traumas. I can't tell you how many times, uh, percentage-wise, it's 100% of the time. When clients come to see me, and we have enough time and rapport to go into it, there's always a uh, relation. Their their present problems always have uh, have roots in their childhood. 
Now, again, that's very classic thinking for a psychodynamic person, but I'm here to tell you, and if, and of course, there's no scientific way of measuring this, and it could be all confirmation bias, which is all, you know, needs to be recognized. But I'm here to tell you that according to the way I see things and according to my experience, this has always been the case. Whenever anyone uh, tells me any kind of problem they're dealing with in their marriage or at their job or with their depression or anxiety, it, I always can find a, a very compelling, uh, uh, you know, genesis of it in their early childhood. So, so as we explore those things in therapy, uh, clients become more self-aware. We, we start making those connections and the, and the clients are like, oh, wow, yeah, I, I never really made that connection. You know, th- the way that my parents criticized me, isn't that interesting how I end up criticizing other people? That's, that's, that's an interesting correlation that, that I never really quite made before. Um, so all this is in the effort of increasing self-awareness, understanding their interpersonal patterns, understanding their defense mechanisms, the way that their defenses kick in. Understanding their attachment style and the way that you know they attach to other people and their reactions regarding attachment, how they withdraw from people, how they um, uh, invade other people's space, and what their anxiety regarding attachment is. Um, this is in the you know the, the the words that are often associated with this in sort of the classic language is interpretation. Uh, through interpretation, clients become more aware of themselves. Uh, in the old days, the psychoanalyst would interpret and just tell the client, look, this has to do with your penis envy or something. And the client would be like, oh, okay, I guess I have to accept that. Contemporary psychodynamic people in the past 20, 30 years are very hesitant to do that kind of stuff. And they're much more likely to say, well, you really got to work collaboratively with people. It's the same way I do dream analysis. So dream analysis is, is a way of increasing self-awareness. So some client comes to me, they start talking about their dreams. And, and so we collaboratively analyze their dreams. And I have episodes about that if you want to listen to those. But the idea is, is that I don't, I, don't, I don't interpret. I don't just say, oh, that means that or this is an indication of this and you have that or something. I say like, I say like well, let's explore that. What do you think? What do you think this is? What do you think that is? And so we collaboratively come to a place and I always confirm with them, how does that feel? Does that feel accurate to you? And if it doesn't feel accurate to them, then I assume that I'm not on the right path. Um, another word is free association. You'll hear that. So that can be essentially an act of self-awareness because you, when you're free associating, you're trying to uh, uncover things that are unconscious. Anyway, so that's a big part of my model is trying to help clients understand themselves. Uh, try you know trying to f- have have them figure out connections insights into their attachment styles into things that are happening for them in the present related to the past and uh, emotional awareness all this kind of is very important for my model of psychodynamic uh, therapy the second thing here is corrective emotional experiences now maybe i i've, I've always wanted to do a full episode on corrective emotional experiences but because there's this really interesting history of the term. But in essence, the original corrective emotional experience definition was essentially just the therapist would just react in opposite to their countertransference. But what I'm saying, my and what I think a, a, a few minor authors are actually saying now, is I, I use the term corrective experience to mean that it's, an, it's a therapeutic 
stance or a therapeutic experience that's created by the therapist that corrects for the past. So again, let's go back to our idea of internalization and projective identification. So the we have a client and she grows up with critical parents and she internalizes the critical other and uh, this critical crit, crit, criticized self. And this creates all this internal strife and all these relationship problems. She keeps reenacting all this criticism and, you know, feeling dumb and making other people feel, feel dumb. And she has all these self voices. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. And then um, her life starts to kind of fall apart and she goes to therapy and she sits down in my office and our relationship starts to develop. And I start to have all those impulses to criticize her. I start noticing it. I start saying, huh, isn't that interesting that whenever we talk, I have this, I have this impulse to uh, criticize her uh, through these sort of masked compassion statements. You know, in the example I gave earlier, it's like, you know, I, I have this, I'm really, I'm kind of angry at her that she didn't stick up to her boss on that thing when her boss wa- walked all over her. And occasionally I'll, I'll start talking to her as if I'm angry at her, like I'm, you know, I, in my conscious mind, I'm like, well, I'm being compassionate because I don't want her to be walked on by her boss. But really, I think I have a vibe of criticism. I think I'm, in a sense, kind of putting her down. Now, all this is uh, discovered through contemplation, through supervision, consultation, through my own therapy. I don't necessarily notice that if unless I engage in practices that help me to notice that. So as I notice that, I'm like, huh, uh, I think this client, through projective identification, through reenacting their past relationships, I think she is actually trying to socialize me to agree to recreate a past relationship pattern in which someone criticizes her and puts her down. And you know, and then I sort of go into some of her past, and I discover, oh, her her parents were very critical of her. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. So that's one of her core relationship issues. That's one of her core relational traumas is being criticized and rejected and made to feel stupid and incompetent by her parents. Okay. So I've done all that process. I've thought about it. I've, re, you know, I've taken note of the impulses that I've had. I, I, I take note of the fact that I've given into those impulses at times. And then I, I, disc, I, at this point, I hypothesize what the, what the best thing I can do in therapy is provide a corrective experience regarding this, which is, as I am being socialized to criticize her, I refrain from criticism and actually do something more nurturing. So let's say, again, she comes in and she says, so I went into my boss's office and he said that he was going to cut my hours and cut my pay. And it's total bullshit because I have seniority, but, you know, I I didn't say anything because, I I don't know, I just didn't feel like I have the right to speak back. And so that's that. Now, in that moment, you know, given the scenario, um, let's say that she is trying to induce critical behavior and critical impulses from me. And I can feel it in my, my, you know, soul. I can feel these, these impulses to tell her, like, Stop it. Knock it off. You have to stick up for yourself. And, and what's, you know, I, and, I, and I have this impulse to kind of uh, have an, an implication that I think that she's ridiculous and stupid for, for not sticking up for herself. And I notice all that. And so in that moment, I refrain from doing all that. I refrain from criticizing her. I refrain from pointing out that she did something wrong. And instead, 
I say, well, how do you feel about that? You know, do you, do you think, um, uh, you know, how do you feel? Do you feel good about it? Feel bad about it? Just have it be more open-ended. Or I might even go so far as to say, well, you know, good for you that, that you did that to protect yourself, it, you know, because getting in a conflict with your boss could, could be bad for you. And I, I think that's a, just a really great decision that you made. So in the first instance where I'm just like, how do you feel about it? That's more neutral, right? So I'm, at the very least, I'm not going to engage in the reenactment by criticizing her. And so I'm just being neutral and I'm just refraining from criticizing her and I'm just saying like, oh, you know, how, how do you feel about it? And just, you know, having, having it be a more uh, uh, exploratory conversation. Or I can go even further if I feel and intuit that it's, that it's best and good by actually complimenting her and saying that she is the opposite of stupid, which is smart and, and very competent. Now, this is all in the effort of providing a corrective experience. And again, if we go back to our language regarding internalizations, I'm trying to diminish the internalization of you're stupid, I'm stupid. And I'm trying to bolster the internalization of I'm smart, you're smart. I am saying to her, geez, you're smart. And she's thinking, huh, I'm smart. Now, what a lot of listeners out there might think is, but wait, what if a client is doing something stupid? <laughs> what if a client needs to be told that they're doing something stupid? Well, you know, therapy is an art form and there's no right or wrong answers to these things. But what I say to that is therapy is not about the content. It's about the process. You hear that all the time. Focus on process, not content. The content of what the client is talking about is having a pay reduction and having issues with, assert with assertiveness. But it's your job as a therapist to figure out what the real problem is, which, according to this hypothetical, over time and contemplation and trial and error, I discovered that the real problem is not assertiveness. I mean, it's a, it's a problem for her, but the real problem, and perhaps the reason why she has a problem with assertiveness, is the fact that she has a very strong internal representation, an internalization, a very strong internalization of, I'm stupid, you're stupid. And that needs to be treated, not assertiveness. I could tell her to be assertive, that, that would be fine, but the, the foundational problem, the, the, the issue that drives her lack of assertiveness is the fact that she was criticized so much as a child, and she needs to go through an experience with a caring, intense relationship in which she is not criticized and, in fact, complimented for her decisions, even if they're not, even if her decisions don't make a lot of sense, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what decisions she makes in particular. It matters that you as a therapist provide therapy for what needs to be treated. So I hope that all makes sense. Um, okay, so you, you do all this, you facilitate uh, corrective emotional experiences mainly through relationship and through understanding project, projective identification and by being very self-aware as a therapist and being very attuned to how, what's happening in the intersubjective field between you and them. It's, it's a very complicated thing, but it's fascinating. And when you really get into it and really start to think about this stuff in your personal life as well, you really start figuring out why 
people run into these patterns that are difficult. So let's say I wasn't aware of all this stuff and I just engaged in this in this hidden criticism by telling her, look, you got to work on your assertiveness skills. You got to tell that boss to go to hell. And like, and I, and I am conscious mind. I'm like, yeah, I'm being caring. I'm being compassionate. Well, I'm just going to bolster that, that I'm, you you know, I'm just going to bolster that internalization that she's dumb. And that I think she's dumb. She's going to internalize. She's looking at me and she's thinking, I think my, I think my therapist thinks I'm dumb. I think my therapist is criticizing me right now. It doesn't feel very good, but my therapist is probably right because I'm dumb and I, I'm a dumb person and my, my therapist is a smart person. And so, but I feel bad right now. I don't feel very good about myself. And so this, be, this just becomes this ongoing internalization that just bolsters this old original uh, relational trauma of being criticized. And nothing ever happens, right? The, the problem never goes away because the, the dumber you feel, the harder it is to be assertive in life. So it's very important. So again, you, you focus on the relationship, the alliance, the, you know, you got to repair the ruptures. You got to have positive regard. You got to listen well. You got to manage the attachment in the relationship, manage the, the alliance. You have to you know, talk about feelings a lot. You have to work well with resistance. You have to maintain your empathy and compassion for the client. And you have to really know and manage your own countertransference. Okay. So that's the end of that. Now, there are a number of different psychodynamic, major psychodynamic areas and in, in terminology that I don't use. Um, I don't use the psychosexual phases, you know, the phallic phase and the anal phase. Although some contemporary writing has come out that is kind of cool, but I don't know, it just doesn't resonate with me. I don't use the drive model, and Freud uh, often, or there were times when Freud didn't follow it as well. Also, I don't follow the, you know, what some psychoanalytic people will do, which is make everything about penis or um, or sex issues. Also, I, I don't adhere to the psychoanalytic model of seeing people three or four times a week. I don't think that's necessary. I, I don't have people lay down on the couch, although some clients will lay down. I don't, I don't necessarily encourage that. I don't use the classic free association in psychodynamic therapy, which you can look into. And I also don't use a lot of dream work. I find that dream work can be very interesting, but usually clients want to talk about more present things, I guess. Um, so there's that. All right. Patron Terrence wrote in, I don't know how long ago, but uh, patron Terrence, he asked, can psychodynamic therapy be applied to treating those suffering from substance abuse? And I will provide a very short answer to that. It's, it's a very complicated topic. You know, um, psychodynamic therapy, as I've been talking about is extremely broad and complicated and chemical dependency treatment is also pretty complicated. So, um, there's a lot of issues to talk about. Plus, there's a lot of different kinds of addiction, a lot of different kinds of uh, addiction that is um, presented. You have strong addiction or mild addiction, blah, blah, Anyway, But briefly, how, how can psychodynamic therapy be used to help people with substance abuse? And I, I've done that before. Whenever I have treated people who are asking me for help with addiction, I will engage in a lot of different kinds because I... I integrate all theories into it and psychodynamic being one of them. And so let's say for instance, I am treating someone who has an opioid addiction 
And as we're talking about how to abstain and educating about what the effects are and what tolerance is and withdrawal symptoms and all the different things I would do with chemical, regular chemical dependency treatment, I might also assess their personality and their projective identification patterns and the interlocking projective identification patterns between me and the client and between the client and their system that they're in. And I would try to provide corrective experiences and also increase awareness regarding their relationship patterns and their own defenses because people will use addiction or opioids specifically as a defense mechanism, right? It's a very effective way of withdrawing from the world. And when you feel threatened, then you will engage in a lot of different sorts of defenses, including drug abuse to withdraw. So increasing self-awareness, understanding how the past affects the present, exploring the feelings, exploring their defenses, their patterns of defense, why they engage in defense, and then also me providing a corrective experience. For the vast majority of people, particularly the people I've treated who suffer from addiction, the reason why they're suffering from addiction is because of relational traumas, not because there's something wrong with them or because they were born an addict. It's, it's almost always because of psychodynamic issues, honestly. And so uh, to, you know, the question from patron Terrence is how, how can you use psychodynamic therapy when treating people with substance abuse? It's, a, it's the same. You know, subs- there's a lot of different uh, adult results of childhood relational traumas. And when I say relational traumas, I mean like obviously being abused or neglected, but also being criticized or rejected or made to feel as though you needed to grow up too fast or, you know, various different kinds of things like that. And so uh, those experiences can result in a lot of different things. It can result in depression or anxiety or relationship problems or, or substance abuse or substance addiction. And so often what I find is that when I target the psychodynamic issues, all of the other things go away. The depression, the addiction, the personality problems, the attachment issues, they they all go away when you provide a corrective experience. Now, the corrective experience can take a long time. For, for minor problems, it could just be a few months. But for major relational traumas, it could be literally 10 to 20 years of therapy. And I know I have patrons out there listening who are thinking about themselves because people have emailed me and I'll talk with them about their therapy and about what sort of corrective emotional experiences they should be seeking. And, you know, you might be thinking 10 or 20 years of therapy, my God. And yeah, I, I get it. It's, it's, it's a long time, but when you are mistreated as a child, the, uh, the, the correlational amount of time as an adult. So let's say you go through five years of neglect and rejection from the ages of zero to five. Well, the amount of corrective emotional experiences you have to experience as an adult to correct for those five years is probably 10 times as long. So you'd have to go through 50 years of correctional, corrective emotional experiences in order to compensate for those early five years. And, and it still might not be entirely uh, effective because when you're zero to five, you're much more of a sponge, right? So, uh, so now there's no direct correlation there. There's no mathematical equation that's, that's set in stone. But the idea is, is you need a lot more time as an adult to correct for that. Now, 
Having said all that, therapy is not the only way in which you can have a corrective emotional experience. You can have a corrective emotional experience with anybody. You can even have a corrective emotional experience while watching a TV show. So there are ways in which people can engage in corrective emotional experience in a conscious way that doesn't have to involve going to therapy. For instance, whenever your spouse has reacted in a noble fashion towards you and refrained from criticizing you even though you are trying to get them to criticize you or when they have not rejected you even though you are trying to socialize them to reject you, every time that they passed that test, they have bolstered positive interjects in you and have diminished the one that you're trying to recreate. So, uh, in fact, I would say that the best corrective emotional experience is with spouses because they're there all the time and the relationship is, is so much more meaningful. However, for some people, they, they, because of their relational traumas, it's, it's really hard for them to establish strong, secure, ongoing attachments with a spouse. And so uh, therapy is the only place that they can get that. And once they get enough of those corrective experiences in therapy, then they can begin to trust and create functional relationships in their personal life, which will lead to more corrective experiences for them in the real world. Okay, so that was epic, was it not? <laughs> um, so again, going over uh, the, the 12 things here, we have the mind, mental dynamics, personality, determinism, the idea of the, the unconscious, the ideas of subjectivity and inner subjectivity, the, the idea of attachment, the idea of internalization of relationships, the idea of countertransference, the idea that awareness helps, and, and the idea of defenses. Those are the major uh, topics. And then we have the two pillars of psychodynamic therapy, which is increasing self-awareness and providing corrective emotional experiences. And then the other list that I want you to remember is the three reasons why we recreate our our past uh, experience, our, our past relationships. Let's see if I can find that list. Okay, so we recreate our initial internalization. So you know, as as children, we're internalizing all these various different things, and some of the inter- these interjects, these internalizations, will will recreate later in life for three different reasons. One, because it's comfortable devil you know. Two, we're unconsciously trying to to recreate the past to correct. We're trying to engineer a corrective experience for us. But unless we actually intentionally create a corrective experience, the chance of it randomly becoming a corrective experience is pretty low. But that's why we're doing it. And the third reason that we, we recreate these past relationships is because we need to externalize the internal conflict because it's much harder to deal with when it's internal. And we engage in a number of different defenses uh, through this process of denial and wishful thinking and idealization, dissociation, repression, regression, conversion, um, uh, displacement, transference, all these kinds of things acting out. We do this because uh, our internalizations are being touched upon and creating internal strife. All right. Well, that does it for that long-ass episode of Psychology in Seattle. Let me know what you think about it. And 
hopefully that'll be the last episode I have to do on psychodynamic therapy. <laughs> um, but we'll see. I'm also planning one day after the other books I plan on publishing, uh, publishing all this ideas and with examples and stuff. I, I want to write something about this because I feel like there's not a lot of integrated psychodynamic systems um, literature out there. Okay. Thanks for joining me. Please, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And when you do take care of yourself, it creates a, a corrective emotional experience. So actually, <laughs> that's another thing I want to point out is that when you say nice things to say nice things to yourself, when you take care of yourself, you're actually creating another internalization because there's there's different parts of yourself that are doing things. So say you had a stressful day at work and you come home and you're like, man, I was a good worker today. I was a good therapist today or something. Well, there's a part of you that's saying you're a good therapist. And there's another part of you that is receiving that and saying, huh, thanks for saying that. And so there's this dyad that is occurring in your own psyche. Well, that dyad can is also internalized and bolsters a part of yourself that is positive. And so when you take care of yourself, you're actually creating a corrective emotional experience that will enhance your attachment security, your adaptability to life, your emotional react, your emotional um, regulation, and your just general well-being. So by taking care of yourself, you're, you're, you're doing a really great psychodynamic corrective emotional experience because you deserve it. <laughs>